That sounds so wrong. I know, right? <laughs> That's why I said it that way. <laughs> Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Chapter 26. The last chapter. It is. In Parents and Children. So, the last article that they felt worthy of including in this book. So this is The Eternal Child, and it is the highest counsel of perfection to parents. And she starts off with a poem by John Davidson here. This is a section from the Fleet Street Eclogues. An eclogue is a poem in a classical style on a pastoral subject. And this one was on Christmas Eve. And it was written kind of like a play. It had two or three people talking back and forth. And the first thing it says is the waits. Slowly they play poor careful souls with, with, with wistful thoughts of Christmas cheer. So the waits, I didn't know what they were. They were uh, musicians from medieval times up to the early 18th century. Uh, any British town or city had a band of waits. And their duties varied from time and place. and But they included playing their instruments at night, waking the townsfolks up on the dar dark winter mornings, and welcoming royal visitors, and hmm. leading mayor processions, and all of that kind of stuff. So they were, they were just paid musicians. For the town. Like paid town staff musicians. Yeah. So like, like if something happened or there was an alarm, they would play their music. Right. And then in 1835, <laughs> That's funny. the waits were abolished, but the Christmas waits kept going. It would be any group of singers or musicians who formed a band in order to sing and play carols for money around their town in the Christmas period. Oh. So. All right. Okay. Largely amateur musicians. So when she said, or when she, when he, when John Davidson here says the waits, he's referring to those people that random the carolers who carolers. went around and played for money. Yeah. A, a roving band of musicians who want money for their the music. A mariachi band. That <laughs> I guess that maybe fits the criteria. So then we start talking about Christmas, which seems incredibly appropriate for the time that this is releasing. I was thinking that. Which this episode is being released the first Monday of Advent. We are coming into the Christmas oh, season. True. And this this whole thought of Christmas joy and children and it's it's happening right now. So this is a very appropriate chapter to read right now. It's like we planned it. Except that requires forethought. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and at least I had never read this until I didn't this week, so I didn't know Christmas was coming. You knew Christmas was coming. You didn't know this chapter was coming about Christmas, but not you... in this chapter. Whatever. <laughs> okay, Christmas joy. I don't know where to. 
I don't know. I don't really have anything highlighted other than, I mean, no, I don't have anything highlighted. The main thing I took out of this first bit, though, is that she's using Christmas joy to be an illustration about how children and adults differ. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I have more notes, but that's kind of the an overarching. Um, and it, it so she uses this as a, a vast, vivid contrast yeah. to. And, and uh, to adult to child, and then to go into why child is an estate to be esteemed. Mm-hmm. So just to dive in, I'll dive in a little bit for why Christmas. She's she's talking about Christmas joy and Thanksgiving, and it takes the it, it's good for everyone, even those who are in need, sorrow, or adversity. But it takes the presence of children. To help us realize the idea of the eternal child. The day spring, Christ, is with the children. So we think their thoughts and are glad in their joy. And those who don't have children catch the echoes. We hear the songs, we hear the stories. But daily life is hard. Mm. And daily life is can be dreary. And so then we become impatient of the fact that Christmas is always joyous and demands joyousness, which I think is why Advent is so necessary. Because it doesn't celebrate Christmas. This, the celebrating of Advent pulls you into this time of waiting, mm. this time of longing, this time of preparing, preparing uh, for four weeks. Mm-hmm. And then you have 12 days of Christmas but you have these four weeks of waiting and longing and looking for the Messiah to come. And that tempers that joyousness of Christmas because it's not there yet. That's and true. You, you can wait for it. You have to wait for it. As opposed to trying to have Christmas cheer for the entire month of December. And I think that's what drags on a lot of people is that, oh my goodness, it's the entire month of December. And now it's the entire month of December and half of November. If not all of November, because as soon as you're done with Halloween, you're diving right into Christmas. Exactly. And so so this this makes sense that the dreariness of daily living overshadows the Christmas demands of joyousness. And we get tired of it. Yeah, we do. Impatient with it. We absolutely do. You used to be worse than Scrooge. Oh, I used to be a Scrooge completely. I hated Christmas. I hated the the Christmas cheer. I hated the the holiday songs. I hated the – frankly, I even hated the time off from work. But one of the things that has helped me draw out of that, one is honestly not wanting to raise little Scroogelings because <laughs> that sounds terrible. Little Grinches. Little, little Grinches. Or maybe those are gremlins. I don't know. But then the other part of it is, is I think going through Advent and actually sitting down as an adult and looking at Advent because we did Advent as children, and I don't know what I missed, but I missed it. I, I don't, I don't understand. It didn't impact me, and I don't know why, but it didn't. And then it didn't stick with me as I got older. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, Advent is definitely something that brought me back into it. But the the other thing I'll say is uh, we were talking to our children tonight at dinner saying that, hey, tomorrow is Thanksgiving. Again, we're, we're recording the, the evening before Thanksgiving and they were beside themselves excited. Yeah, they were. It was, it was funny how excited they were about Thanksgiving. And, and this Thanksgiving is with some families we don't know. It's three other families. Yeah. We're new to town and they invite us over and, and there's going to be a ton of kids. And Ian told me, he's like, yeah, us kids, we're all going to go play. And you adults are going to go talk. And hold babies. <laughs> and hold babies. Mm-hmm. So he's got it down. That's what happens. That's what happens. That's what we do. But they're, they're very excited for it. They are. And so that whole Christmas joy thing, she's, she's absolutely right. Their joy is, is there. And it's pure. It's unadulterated. It's unfiltered. Well, and she goes on to say it has its first freshness when we tell it to new eager listeners mm-hmm. so we can listen through them. Right. And we can see it with new eyes because it, with uh, hard thoughts that drop away like scales from our eyes. And we can see it because they're experiencing it for the first time. Same thing as going out in nature and looking at everything. They're fascinated by the ants. So you have to sit there for who knows how long looking at ants. And then they become fascinating. Yeah. We've been watching. We've got some bird feeders. And for the longest of times, you know, I've not cared about the birds. Mm -hmm. But now they're seeing them and now they're fascinating. They are. So so it's 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 the whole new eyes. And and what a mystery it, it is. Yeah, so then she moves on to some what I'd say is questionable doctrine. She says, every child bears an evangel. Every babe comes into the world with an evangel, which witnesses of necessity to his parents' hearts, that we too are children, the children of God, that he would have us be as children, is the message that the newborn child never fails to bear. We're not quite at the uh, questionable theology yet but we'll get there so backing up and said for the little child is the true saint christopher and that threw me for a loop because saint christopher is the patron saint of travel and other things but i mean children travel down the birth canal but i as i was (laughs) doing my tiny bit of research that i did he is most often depicted as carrying the Christ child across the river, like he's helping him ford the river. And so that that's his most prominent story. And then, you know, he unknowingly was carrying the Christ child, got to the other end, said, you know, you were the heaviest burden I've ever had to carry. And he said, well, this is why. And then he vanished. That's the story. But what I realized when she's saying for every little child is the true St. Christopher this is again my thought refers to the fact that he carried christ the christ child across the river like the little children bring christ to us Mm, okay because that that threw me for just a little bit i was like what how how does this how did these work interesting but in in bearing the image of christ which all of us do they bring us as adults cynical hardened adults back to christ 
So interesting. So okay. every every birth reminds us that this happens, and this happens again. And like Christ said, we we must become as little children. Right. So that that's kind of where I saw that going. That makes sense. So the next section is the child is humble. And she says, the note of childhood is before all things humility. Hey, I have that underlined too. Right? That's kind of the capstone here. She goes on to say, what we call innocence is probably resolvable into this grace, repellent to the nature of man until he shall embrace it, and then disclosing itself to him as divine. And then she goes into this William Law quote. You want to find out who William Law I, is? I'm, I'm quite curious, actually. He is a Church of England priest, um, 1686 to 1761. And he wrote, well, he was a priest at a college, and then his conscience would not allow him to take the required oath of allegiance to the first Hanover, Hanoverian monarch, King George I. So thereafter, he first continued as just a priest, and when that too became impossible without the required oaths, he taught privately, as well as wrote extensively. So his personal integrity, as well as mystic and theological writing, greatly influenced the evangelical movement of his day. And his writings remain in print today. And this is from A Humble, Earnest, and Affectionate Address to the Clergy. Interesting. Well, I'm not quite sure about the theological ramifications of this paragraph, so I don't know how long we want to sit on it. I looked and uh, actually at the text a little bit, and just before this section that she's quoting, he is contrasting two different things. He's contrasting pride versus humility hmm. as two sides of 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 the coin. Gotcha. Pride being the innate natural state of man, the state of Adam, and humility being mm -hmm. the divine state of Christ. So as I look here, I, that all that all makes sense, and there, and his quote all makes sense. It's her conclusion that I'm not that I'm a little fuzzy on, because he basically says that humility is one in the same sense, and truth as Christ is one. So. Christ is the most humble person ever. And the humility of, of Christ was perfect and right and good. And there's, there's only one, there's only one mediator. There's not two lambs of God to take away the sins of the world. There's only one. And if there was anyone else that was just as humble as Jesus, well, then there would be two. Who could take away the sins of the world? So whatever that is. But then she goes on to say, uh, now if there be but one humility in the world, and that humility be the humility of Christ, and if our Lord pronounces the little child to also be humble, is it not because of the indwelling divinity, the glory in the child which we call innocence? And that and I'm not where you have that I'm not quite sure about that. I don't like I said, I don't really want to dig into it. But at the surface, without thinking about it and digging into it, that it strikes me as a as a far jump. So, I wanted to bring that up. 
Okay. I honestly skipped right over that. That's so perfectly we fine. We don't have much there. So anyway, I, I, I feel like, I feel like the chapter really starts saying that childhood is before all things humility, skipping this bit about Jesus and the church and children being indwelled with divinity and then into the next section. So you okay. could get rid of the first two pages and this paragraph and we'd be fine. And this paragraph coming up? Uh, or the one no, no, no. The one that we just read. Okay. This this one about uh, this quote from William Law and, and her pondering about it. I mean, the Christmas thing is cool because it, it helps get us in the right place. Anyway, moving on then to the next section, unless you have other thoughts about that. No, I'm good. Okay. Humility, not relative, but absolute. And she says, our common notion of humility is inaccurate. We regard it as a relative quality. We humble ourselves to this one and that, bow to the prince, but lord it over the peasant. And she gives a couple more examples, but then later she says, humility is absolute, not relative. It's by no means a taking of our place among our fellows according to a given scale, some being above us and others below. There is no reference to above or below in the humble soul, which is equally humble before an infant, a primrose, a worm, a beggar, a prince. So let's back up just a moment. Okay. Humility is, according to the dictionary, freedom from pride or arrogance, the quality or state of being humble. So what's humble? Humble is not proud or haughty, not arrogant or assertive. Two is reflecting, expressing, or offering a spirit of deference or submission. And three is either ranking low in a hierarchy or scale, or not costly or luxurious. So those are the three definitions of humble. I think she's more referring to the first two. I think she's referring to the first two, but society of the time is referring to the ranking low in hierarchy or scale. That's what she's saying, where it's a relative right. quality. And it, she says, this misconception confuses our thought on an important subject. And the word that came to my mind is also the word meek. Mm. And so both of those are very elusive concepts. Mm-hmm. They're, they're hard to grasp and hard to define. Right. But equally strong and gentle and humble, but <laughs> but but not necessarily societally well thought of. Right. So I think that's I think as far as you know this goes, this is her defining her terms as yeah clear as mud as this is. Well, I, th- I think that's what she's doing. I think she is. I think she is because she has to. She has to define what it is because clearly. Her definition and society at the time's definition is not one and the same. Yeah. She goes on to bring it back to children, though. She says, this is the natural state of children, or this is the state natural to children. Every person and every thing commands their interest, but the person or thing in action is deeply interesting. Uh, The child says, may I go and make mud pies with the boy in the gutter? Praise the little prince, discerning no difference at all, and the little boy in the gutter would meet him with equal frankness. Kids don't care what their political state station is. Yeah. Kids don't care what color other kids are. Kids don't care what sex other kids are. They just don't care. Mm-hmm. Those are not things that are important at all. 
uh, there's a there was a video I found I saw as I was scrolling through Instagram, and it was a little black kid and a little white kid. They were like they were just starting to walk, and they must it was it was in the city and they were on a walk and they saw each other walking towards each other and both of the little kids threw out their arms with big old smiles on their faces and sprinted at each other and then they got close to each other and stopped talked for a moment laughed turned around and started running <laughs> just with each other and then they were running together and it was great and and it was you know that's that's how that's how kids are and that's how we as people should be we shouldn't see color or sex or political station that none of those things matter when it comes to having relationships humble alike towards higher or lower and unaware of distinctions exactly hey she says it again <laughs> she does she does so that was she 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 did a lot of leading up but i think i think that's that's one of her main points at the start of this is that children are humble and this is how we see them being humble. And this is what I mean by humble. Right. And it's not, as she goes on to say, not about self-deprecating remarks. Mm -hmm. Not about, oh, I'm not good enough for that. I don't have power. I don't think much of myself. I wish mine had a better mother. But I'm not a bit wise. Again, it's putting yourself down to make others better. Mm -hmm. It's that positional hierarchy. Yeah. Putting yourself lower on a rung than everyone else. Mm -hmm. And again, we get a David Copperfield quote or a David, reference. Isn't he the magician? He's he's that's the name of a book. I've never read it. If that makes you feel any better, I feel like he's a magician. That name sounds really familiar. Yeah, he's an American musician. Okay, yeah, no, she's David. Quote, she's pulled this one out a lot. For whatever reason, this is the first time I put those two things together. Anyway, David Copperfield. The Uriah Heap is a person in the book. Gotcha. Not the old American magician. No, not that one. Nope. He was not alive. Unless he was, because he's a magician. Anyways. <laughs> so that's not the type of humility we're talking about. If that's not it, then it is a higher principle, a blessed state, only now and then attained by us elders but in which the children perpetually dwell and in which it is the will of God that we should keep them. So we should keep them in this state of humility for as long as they will stay there. Right. Is what she's advocating. It does not think much or little of itself. It does not think of itself at all. Yeah. The person who is unaware of himself is capable of all lowly service, of all suffering for others, of bright cheerfulness under the smell. Sorry of bright cheerfulness under all the small crosses and worries of everyday life. This is the quality that makes heroes, and this is the quality that makes saints. And she references, my soul doth magnify the Lord. That is the first line in Mary's Magnificant, her prayer of praise that she gives to God when she's with child. It's an outpouring of praise to God for his wonders and the fact that he would visit her right. with this amazing responsibility. Interesting. I I missed that. So the next three sections, I have a bunch of question marks next to it. She's going into more what is humility and how how can a person become unaware of himself? 
How can a person be capable of lowly surface, all su- service, all suffering for others, and bright cheerfulness? How, how can this happen? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. She lost me in these sections. Okay. She's contrasting objective versus subjective. Subjective is personal perspectives, feelings, or opinions entering the decision-making process. Objective is the elimination of those subjective perspectives and the process based purely on hard facts. So, so she's saying Christian religion is objective. It offers a fact. This is the thing. The divine person, the desire of the world. We mistake our needs, occupied with our own falls, our own repentance, into our religion, which makes our religion subjective and then objective. But it should be objective. Again, kind of the imperative indicative type thing. Right. So we should have religion be objective first. And then we, if we have time or care to think about ourselves, subjective. But we as humans make it the about way. our feelings, about our thoughts, the way we perceive things, our emotions, and mm. then objective. That's what that first section is. Okay. And then back to the children. Children go objectively. Now, the tendency of children is to be altogether objective and not at all subjective. And perhaps that is why they are said to be the first in the kingdom of heaven, because they don't they don't think everything is about themselves. Possibly. Hmm. And she goes into this philosophical, this philosophic distinction is not one that we can put aside as having no bearing on everyday life. It strikes the keynote for the training of children. Back to first principle one, children are born persons. Yeah, true. In proportion as our training tends to develop the subjective principle, it tends to place children on a lower level of purpose, character, and usefulness throughout their lives. While, so far as we uh, develop the objective principle with which the children are born, we make them capable of love, service, heroism, and worship. So based on those two different of approaches to life, subjective, objective, she's going to go into altruistic and egotistic later in this section. But mm-hmm. so far as we, as far as which lens we take on life and on religion, it colors our treatment of children and how we perceive them. That makes sense. And it also it also colors how we how we interact with them and how we train them and teach them. Yeah. Okay. And again, going in as she keeps going, she gives one example as to how we how we treat them. Well, first she talks about how we should basically take care of them in such a way that they don't think about their basic necessities in any way, shape or form. So we take care of them so that they don't have to take care of themselves in that regard Sure. So when they're prov- young. We provide them food. We make sure they sleep. Yeah. So that they don't have to worry about. Those things. Those types of things. That makes sense. And so his attention is not turned towards that. So then she goes into the example of fortitude. Mm-hmm. How to, how this perspective, this objective or subjective perspective deals with the training of fortitude and fortitude is 
mental and emotional strength in facing difficulty, adversity, danger, or temptation courageously. It was a part of the seven Christian virtues. The cardinal virtues were prudence, justice, temperance, and courage, courage also meaning fortitude, as well as the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So those are the seven virtues, Mm. as opposed to the seven deadly sins or capital vices or cardinal sins. So pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, and sloth. And jumping before you know where you're going to throw a pass when you're playing basketball. That's a cardinal sin. That's what I taught for years. (laughs) There you go. And all my boys knew it. (laughs) (laughs) They would do it and I would yell at them, what's the cardinal sin, guys? Don't jump before you know where you're going to throw the ball. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't leave your feet. Sorry. (laughs) They're the eight cardinal sins, apparently. (laughs) So this is talking about the ability to to withstand or not take notice of cold heat, pain, discomfort, etc. So this was kind of frustrating to me because we had an entire chapter chapter what's that 17 about sensations being educable by parents (laughs) so we have this entire chapter where she talks about speaking of sensations of cold and heat and hard and soft and using object lessons and letting nature teach and we have to help them understand it and be able to talk about it and but that's all but that's all in an objective manner Exactly. That's, That's all... where my mind went after that. Oh, okay. Okay. I was going to say, because <laughs> what she's talking about there is it is cold. It is hot. What is, What do I mean by it is cold? Well, it is this amount of degrees of temperature. Uh, and so she's not saying, well, it's I feel cold. No, it is cold. And so she's she's talking about the physical and emotional response to that thing as it acts upon the child. And I think as far as fortitude goes, she's as far as fortitude goes, she's also talking about the capability of accepting it and saying, this is cold, and then disregarding it. Right. And she talks about what's it, the man who the the Oh, where'd it go? The man who gets his leg cut yeah, off. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> but doesn't notice it because he's not paying attention. Yeah, where'd he go? I don't know. He's in there somewhere. Well, most of him. <laughs> Minus a leg. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, his leg is around. So it's, uh, for it is an immutable law that as with our appetites, so with our sensations, in proportion as we attend to them, will they dominate us? Until a single sensation of slight pain or discomfort may occupy our whole field of vision, making us unaware that there's any joy in living, any beauty on the earth. So, however much we pay attention to it, that's how much it will rule us. Right. Which is why when you have a child that really needs to go pee, you distract them with other things. And all of a sudden, they don't need to go pee as much. Unless you've done that a few times, and then they still really well, need okay. to pee. Well, <laughs> okay. They... Yes, their body is really telling them they need to pee. The other thing I was thinking about that as we were talking about this this most of a man here is I was in college in Michigan for a year 
uh, on the West Coast. It was in Grand Rapids. And that winter, it snowed, as it is wont to do there on the coast of Michigan. And so there was, I don't know, four or five feet of snow on the ground. But they shoveled out the pathways, and it was great. The buildings were kept so blasted hot that I couldn't handle it. And so me and a couple other guys would end up wearing shorts and T-shirts and just putting on a large, heavy jacket. And we'd walk to class wearing shorts and flip-flops in single-digit weather because it was just, well, walking from here to there, not going to be that big of a deal. And we got so many weird looks from people who were wearing like snow boots and snow pants just to walk on a shoveled pathway. And then they'd get in the buildings and complain about how hot it was while we're sitting there in shorts and t-shirts being like, nah, it's great. (laughs) This is awesome. This is the right temperature. Yeah. So, you know, I can can see where she's coming from with the ability to say, like, yeah, it's cold, but whatever. Yeah. Or, yeah, it's hot, but whatever. We're fine. I am not advising any Spartan regimen. It is not permitted to us to inflict hardness in order that the children may learn to endure. Our care is simply to direct their consciousness from their own sensations. That's a bummer. Yeah, you poor thing. (laughs) Oh, here's the dude. Oh, he was on the next page. Before the days of chloroform had his leg cut off without any conscious sensation of pain. Because he determinedly kept his mind occupied with other things. It reminds me of... The Princess Bride. Not the movie, because the movie doesn't talk about it, but in the book. He goes to the pit of despair, and he's being tortured. But he's okay because he can go to a safe place in his mind. It doesn't matter what they do to him. Because he just, he goes to where where Belle is in his mind. Belle? No, that's Beauty and the Beast. That's Beauty and the Beast. Buttercup. Buttercup. Sorry. The most fairest woman in the land. No, no, the second fairest. Second fairest? Yeah. Okay. But anyway, he goes he goes to the place in his mind where she is and he doesn't care about the pain until they bring out the machine which gets into that special place in his head. So he can no longer go there because well the pain is there too. So then they actually get to torture him after like weeks of torturing him. <laughs> weeks of torturing his body. Weeks of torturing his body. But because he could escape with Buttercup into the dark recesses of his brain, he was fine. That sounds so wrong. I know, right? <laughs> That's why I said it that way. <laughs> no, but or, or childbirth. Yeah. No, it's absolutely true. So. You go to a place where it just doesn't matter. And, and allow it to be a sensation that you feel. Right. And accept. And don't give precedence or a place of power. Well, yeah. I mean, not to get too graphic, but. That was the major difference between your first pregnancy and delivery and all of the subsequent ones. The first one, you you didn't know it was coming. You didn't know what to expect. Everything was surprising. Everything went so fast. Nothing went the way it was supposed to. We had been prepped and getting ready for a, a typical early labor, you know, multiple hours of labor, times of transition, and... I was well along about 30 minutes into labor. <laughs> yeah, it was a little ridiculous. And so it was it was shocking and surprising and scary because things went too fast. But on subsequent births, it was, no, this is how it goes. Yeah. It happens fast. It happens the way it happens. And it hurts. And okay, we're done. Yeah. 
and and that's just that's the way it was. And so that was the major difference is that you were able to feel those feelings, accept them as they were, but not let them have power or rule over you. And the first one mentally, I was not in that place. No. Well, if you want more details about my birth, <laughs> births multiple. Well, if you want more details about her birth, find yeah, her mother. Talk to my mom. But. <laughs> <laughs> about births of our children. Send me a private message. We can get into that. Yeah, don't send me. I was there, but I'm good. <laughs> okay, so moving on. In addition to teaching them to disregard, you also still need to watch out because if they teach themselves to disregard actual danger signs, then that can be dangerous. Right. Like when it is cold outside, no, you have to put a jacket on so you don't get overly cold. Yeah. So, again, we we come back to similar to subjective and objective. We go into altruistic and egotistic direction. Egoistic. Egoistic. So I looked those up. Altruistic is having or showing an unselfish concern for the welfare of others or relating to or being behavior by an animal that is not beneficial to or maybe harmful to the animal itself but benefits others of its species. Mm. And egoism is a doctrine that individual self-interest is the actual motive of all conscious action, and it's the valid end of all actions. Or, excessive concern for oneself with or without exaggerated feelings of self-importance. So completely thinking about oneself or completely thinking of others. Yep. And again, the affections are capable of receiving a subjective or objective direction, mm -hmm. according to the suggestions which reach from without. She says, a child who is taught from the first the delights of giving and sharing, of loving and bearing, will always spend himself freely on others, will love and serve, seeking for nothing again. But the child who recognizes that he is the object of constant attention, consideration, love and service, becomes self-regardful. Self-seeking, selfish, almost without his, almost without his fault. So strongly is he influenced by the direction of his thoughts received from those around him. So it's the the child's demand for justice, maybe for himself, or for the rights of others. And the way you can see this is by do they yell, "It's not fair! It's a shame!" Coming into my rights and other people's duties, or. Do they claims of self slip into the background and other people's rights, other people and his duties to other people come to the foreground? I thought the contrast here was interesting. She's got duties and rights. And he's concerned with either his rights and others duties or his duties and others rights. And I'm going to get sociopolitical here for a moment. I think that's one of the issues that we're seeing in culture today, at least in the U.S., is that people are more concerned with my rights and your duties. I have the right to do what I want to do, and you need to act in a way that allows me to do it. Egoistic. Right. Which is not wrong. You do have certain inalienable rights. That is true. But so does the other person is the issue. 
And so if we're thinking about our own duties, then then the other people's rights just fall into place. If you think that other people have the right to do things, then it's your duty to protect those rights and provide for those rights in some instances. And so it's, it, yeah, it becomes about others instead of being selfish. And so as we look to raise the next generation of people, that is what she's saying here is one of the big things that we want to have them be is we want them to think about their duty and others' rights. Well, and on top of that, in these two statements, his own rights, other people's duties, versus his own duties and other people's rights, what can you change? You mm-hmm. personally, what can you affect? Mm-hmm. You can affect your duties. You can only do so much as you are able to. Right. And you can't change what other people do. You can try to. You can talk to them. You can suggest other things to them. But you can't change them and you can't change what they do. So she is now concluding because even though it looks like we still have more, we are on the last page and there's only five lines on the next page. She comes back to the festival of the eternal child. So Christmas. So during each coming festival of the eternal child, i.e. where we're at right now coming into the Christmas season, may parents ponder how best to keep their own children in the blessed child estate, recollecting that the humility which Christ commends in the children is what may be described philosophically as the objective principle supposed to the subjective and that in proportion as the child becomes self-regardful in any function of his being, he loses the grace of humility. This is the broad principle. The practical application will need constant watchfulness and constant efforts, especially in holiday seasons, to keep friends and visitors from showing their love for the children in any way that shall tend to develop self-consciousness. I had the first half of that highlighted, and I stopped at this is the broad principle. I have this as a broad principle and that's all. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the part that got to me was, you know, constant watchfulness through the holidays to keep your kids innocent and humble. It's like, well, how do you do that? You, you have, especially in this, this age of consumerism, you have guidelines and limits. And yeah. How many functions do we go to and how many people do we have over? And how many gifts do we have the children receive? Because if it's all about gifts, it's all about what can I get? Yeah. What do I get? Well, not um, not the service and not the fellowship and the friendship and the love. Yeah. I so okay. So going back to reasons I didn't like Christmas, I think that was another thing. Is I got to the point in my life when I hit high school, was I that I knew the things I wanted, and I bought them. Because I worked and I had money. So why do I need a holiday for people to give me things when I don't need anything? Because I buy myself the things I need and want. And the holiday is all about getting things. I don't need things. I'm fine. Mm -hmm. So the holiday fell on deaf ears because it was useless for me. Well, as you you were talking, I think there's... Again, more similarities between young children and old people. 
you have the the bell curve you know they're they're humble they don't understand they don't know and then it rises to a peak of it's about me mm-hmm. like you you mentioned you said the holiday did nothing for me so so there's there's that peak of well if it's about me and it's about gifts i don't need gifts so this holiday has nothing for me right because it's about me which is what i've been told based on the emphasis given to the holiday and the which aspect of it. And now you're coming down on the other side, you old person, you. Yeah, right. On, no, that's not what it's about. It's not about me. And I think as you, you get to that tipping point of where you've lost the humility of a child, the the, the childlike state, and then you have, I guess, the full adult state, and then you go back towards, no, life's really not about this. It's not really about chasing money. It's not really about chasing fame mm-hmm. or fortune or uh, love or enjoyment and pleasure. Ecclesiastes, mm-hmm. at the end of the days, what what is there? And what is life really about? And it comes back to being humble. Right. So it, it, it was interesting. So she finishes with this this last paragraph. She says, This of humility is not only a counsel of perfection, but is perhaps the highest counsel of perfection. And when we put it to parents, we offer it to those for whom no endeavor is too difficult, no aim too lofty, to those who are doing the most to advance the kingdom of Christ. And that's where she ends it. And that's where that's where this book ends. And it ends pretty much right where she started. It rests with you, parents of young children, to be the saviors of society unto a thousand generations. Nothing else matters. Yep. And that was on page three. She came heavy and hard in this book. And and she She took very seriously the education and the rearing of children. And it seems like her goal was to have parents take seriously the raising, education, and rearing of their children. And to be very intentional about deputation of it. Yeah. He perceived that God placed the training of the child, of every child, in the hands of two, a father and a mother. And their response to his teaching proved that as the waters answer to the drawing of the moon, so do the hearts of parents rise to the idea of the great work committed to them. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.